Hello and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, and today I am joined again, thankfully for you and for me, by the inimitable Coffee Brown. Are, are we on? Does my hair look okay? Should I take my glasses off? We are, this is radio, so we're safe. I've been told I have a good face for radio. <laughs> well, um, so Joe, you've been sort of telling me that we shouldn't treat septic patients anymore. We should pretty much just leave them alone. So, yeah, thanks, thanks, Coffee, for uh, introducing the topic. We are going to talk about sepsis today. We're going to talk about the adrenal trial and the recent blog post that I put online uh, entitled Lessons from the Adrenal Trial. And we'll get into what that's all about. But, but yeah, to cut to the chase, I think that we need to rethink sepsis. We need to rethink sepsis in light of evolution. We need to do things differently. Uh, the standard way of thinking about sepsis is misguided. It's incorrect. And as we were just talking about before we turned the recorder on, I think that what we have done historically in sepsis is that we've killed people and wasted research dollars, both. Well, you've been making a pretty strong case that we're going to reiterate here that everything we do for sepsis is bad. However, I have to tell you, even right after that conversation, I'm thinking if I had sepsis, I'd rather be in a modern Western hospital than in a tent uh, in the pre-Columbian plains. I think I would too. And in fact, I, for listeners, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I work at an academic center here at the University of New Mexico. I will tell you that not all my colleagues agree with the point of view that I'm going to discuss here, but I don't deviate from the standard of care. We treat patients with sepsis in a fashion that most people would recognize as uh, the expected way, and I do that too. I just am skeptical that we're helping patients. So this is an area you've been researching for a long time. Your depth of knowledge is drastically greater than mine. But I'm still going to make you fight for every point because I think my job today is to ask the questions our listeners might be asking. And I'll begin with um, some comments from your uh, blog right before the adrenal trial was released. Mm -hmm. And one of the points I felt like you were making was that the wisdom of the body is greater than the wisdom of the doctors and that when we try to correct parameters that are abnormal we're doing more harm than good. There's a reason they're abnormal, that we evolved to make them abnormal because it's part of fighting the sepsis. So I will agree with part of what you just said, which is that I do think that much of what we observe in terms of sepsis physiology should not be looked at as simply a failure of homeostasis, and we should abandon the idea of the body as a machine and that we're just looking at things that are broken and that require fixing. I think that's the problem with sepsis. And with that in mind, the likelihood that much of what we're observing is indeed an evolved adaptation, that that should change our thinking about sepsis, and it should adjust the way that we treat our patients. I'm not saying that we should do things entirely different. And I guess before, before we get on, we should probably talk a little bit about what the adrenal trial is. What do you think? Okay, let's do that. Okay, so the, the reason why we're talking about this is that, Coffee, you're right, this is an area that I am extremely interested in. It's been a topic that I've returned to again and again on the blog. It's not the only thing that I'm interested in. I like to think about 
the microbiome and about evolution generally. Uh, but this is one area where I think that an evolutionary point of view can, can make a, a big impact. For those of you who don't know the term polymath, when you look in the dictionary, it says Joe Alcock. And uh, as a second example, we have um, Dr. Coffee Brown. So we're going we're gonna to jump into the adrenal trial and, and discuss what this is. It has been covered in other podcasts, so I don't feel a need to discuss, discuss this exact trial in huge detail because it has generated a lot of discussion online, a variety of different blog entries. Uh, but the bottom line is that this adrenal trial was a large-scale, randomized, controlled trial examining, they enrolled about 3,800 patients, of which there were over 3,600 that completed the trial. And they either randomized these patients who had septic shock and required ventilatory support, and they gave them either a hydrocortisone infusion or they gave them a placebo. And the idea here was they had, the authors had hypothesized based on some previous trials that suggested there might be a benefit in low to moderate dose hydrocortisone uh, for patients with septic shock. They argued that the hydrocortisone might resolve some underlying underlying adrenal insufficiency that septic patients have and might restore these patients to homeostasis and make them better. So they, they expected an improved outcome, improved survival. And in fact, survival was the main study outcome of the adrenal trial. So the on January 19th, it's January 26th today as we're recording, on January 19th, um, they live-streamed the um, initial rolling out and discussion of this trial uh, in Belfast. And I would highly recommend people go and look that up. Uh, it's worth listening to. It's a couple hours long. Quite a lot of discussion happened there. But I will uh, point out that the lead investigator said, on balance, he thinks the pendulum is swinging in favor of hydrocortisone. That's after the results of this trial? That was at, while he was discussing the results of this trial. I did not expect that comment because the main point of the trial seemed to be that um, mortality rates were not affected at 90 days. Now, that's not exactly true. There was a tiny, tiny benefit in the hydrocortisone line but well, but the error bars overlapped each other so much that it was not statistically significant. Um, and so to be, yeah. So the, the, I'm going to go on a side rant for a moment. This is exactly the place where people say trends toward blah blah blah. When you hear the phrase trends toward in a, in a not statistically significant result, trends toward is science talk for not statistically significant. That's what that means. Otherwise, you just say the result favored this or that. Right. But even when we say things like, you know, treatment A was higher than treatment B, but the result didn't reach statistical significance. Right. That really, you know, the test is trying to tell us something about the, the, about truth, assuming that, that there is a truth right. in, in a patient population like this. And when, when the difference does not rise to your predetermined level of statistic, statistical significance, then there is no difference. And that is really what they, they found here. Yes and, and no. And well, let, me, let me, before you disagree with me here, I just want to put in a plug for Rob McSweeney's Critical Care Reviews. He and, and the Critical Care Reviews put on this conference 
uh, that live streamed these results, and it was a tour de force. So I will echo you in recommending people go and find those uh, videos or podcasts that have some of the the results and the discussion that followed. It is absolutely worth listening to. It is absolutely, in my mind, the way that science should be done and the way that science should be uh, presented. I was going to make the very same comment. Both the study and the presentation of it were absolutely paradigmatic, it looked mm-hmm. like to me. And um, there's a nice discussion, by the way, the last yeah, 10 minutes or so, is a discussion of the difficulties in getting this study off the ground and out the door. And uh, I would highly recommend that to people who are considering this level, doing doing work at this level. They need to listen to that and sort of take heart when they run into challenges. Um, Now, the outcome they primarily looked at wasn't different at 90 days. How many people lived, how many people died. It also but wasn't there different were in 28 a lot days. And 28 days. But there were a lot of sub-outcomes that did differ, both in favor of and against hydrocortisone. And that led to some interesting discussions. Right. I, I would argue, and I will later on in this podcast, that the results are exactly, or just about exactly what you'd predict if you take an evolutionary lens to the problem of sepsis and changes in physiology. Ooh, I'm so glad you said that. Tell me about that evolutionary lens. Tell me what you mean by that. So the evolutionary lens suggests that when you see something that happens in just about everybody when they're confronted with an overwhelming or life-threatening infection, which is these changes uh, that we call uh, septic shock or, or SIRS. And when... So we're talking about kids, post-operative patients, adults, geriatric patients... We all have this kind of stereotyped response to this challenge. And it's true certainly in Western countries and in developed countries and uh, among people that don't have access to health care. So this is something that happens to, to just about all of us when we're confronted with a life-threatening infection. And presumably, these, these changes are things that have happened to our ancestors throughout human evolution. So the idea that these host or human our human body's responses to, to sepsis are the problem and that they have not been modified by natural selection, I think goes against the grain of evolutionary thinking and is, is paradoxical. We wouldn't expect that our bodies would self-destruct in such a dramatic way. I did not expect to get to the sexy part of the talk quite this fast, but I'm so glad you brought that up. This actually gets to the core of the evolution medicine blog. Mm-hmm. So we're dangerously close to saying natural is better. Well, I don't want to quite go that far because I am certainly, if you have a necrotic appendix or dead gut, you're best off going to a surgeon and getting that removed. So modern medical care does great things. We talked about if you have a heroin overdose, you're best off getting to a hospital or seeing one of you know, your trainees, uh, EMS folks, that gives them a dose of Narcan and ventilates them. Um, we can think of example after example of critically important things that we do. And by no means am I arguing against, against what my specialty does. I am, in many ways, a traditional emergency physician. I think that on balance, what I do actually does help people. I think modern medicine is good. I just think we can do it smarter. And we can do it smarter if we take into consideration some lessons from evolution. We're on the verge of saying homeopaths are right. I want to look at that head on. <laughs> okay, what makes you say that? Well, if we say that evolution 
has um, dealt with this problem for millions of years and worked out solutions that are way smarter than we have. And by the way, I wouldn't exactly say that. Well, then homeopaths are right. We should promote those changes that we associate with sepsis because those are the adaptive changes that our body is using to fight the infection. Well, again, I, I want to just push back a little bit here. I'm not so. saying I'm not <laughs> saying sure <hope> so. <laughs> that homeopath homeopathy is the way to go. I'm not suggesting that med <clears throat> modern medicine is bad, and I don't think that on balance that everything normal is good. That that's the naturalistic fallacy, by the way. That's why I'm bringing it up. I want to just drag that right out and make it explicit. Right. How does this bear? How does this shed light on the naturalistic fallacy? So just because, just because something has evolved does not mean it's good. And we can think of plenty of examples of things yep. that... that uh, the appendix, menstruation, and our addiction to uh, junk foods. Right. People argue that preeclampsia is an evolved trait. It doesn't help the people that have preeclampsia. We could get into that in a, in a future podcast. Yeah. There are plenty of, of things. And, 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 even, and I think that some people that do take an evolutionary perspective to sepsis have recognized this. And yet they've said, well, we didn't evolve to be in, in, in an intensive care. And we probably can do better than nature by supporting people's physiology in important ways. And the ventilator is a good example of that. When people simply can't breathe, putting them on a ventilator is, can be an absolutely life-saving thing. It's something that I do in my practice. So let's go there for a second. If we assume, which I do not, by the way, that evolution has evolved the best possible response to infection over the long period of time, that was in an environment that did not account for antibiotics, vasopressors, and ventilators. When we add those, wouldn't it be likely to change the optimal response to the infection? Yes. And I mentioned some of these reasons for why any given patient's response to sepsis may not be optimal on the blog. And I'm, I'm going to refer people to, to look at that entry. I list, I think, 12 different reasons why uh, patients' responses may not be optimal. Um, ha having said that, I'm going to reframe this a little bit. Sure. I want to, let's go back in time. Let's go back to the... Can we go to high school? That was good for me. Was that good for you? I, I can't remember much not, of it. Not so good for me. At college yeah. was definitely better. But let's go back to the 1940s, 1950s. This is the, the modern synthesis when essentially you know, Darwin in the early part of the 1900s had been uh, forgotten for the most part by the trajectory of many biologists. And, uh, the, and even modern and genetics and gen geneticists uh, who had ultimately belatedly taken the lesson, lessons of Mendel and uh, and modern genetics was born in the early early part of uh, the century, but the the two groups didn't kind of put their heads together until about the middle 1940s, and that's called the modern synthesis. That that is the birth of modern biology, mm. in which we we take some of these insights from genetics and we take insights from evolutionary biology and we put them together. And in fact, it's been this hugely fruitful area of research which has dominated uh, what we think of as biology. At the same time, though, medicine never took part in this modern synthesis. They never took lessons from Darwin, and they went along their own way. So let's imagine, let's go back all the way back to the 1950s, and let's imagine that you're a researcher sitting in your lab, and you've read or The Origin of Species, and you're interested in sepsis, and you take care of very sick people. And let's imagine that we have two different hypotheses. One is the traditional medical view, which is that the immune system is dysfunctional, dysregulated, the host is 
part of the problem, more of the problem, in fact, than the invading pathogen. And this is the dominant idea in sepsis. And if that's the case, then we should be able to do better than nature, and we should be able to improve outcomes by blocking certain immune pathways. Let's imagine another person is completely naive and doesn't know anything. And this person says, huh, well, maybe septic shock is itself an evolved trait. And maybe some of these body features that we can see and observe and measure are, in fact, adaptations. If that's the case, then perhaps the immune system knows what it's doing in sepsis. And if that's the case, if we interfere by blocking pathways, we're going to either make things no better and, in some, case, in some cases, make things no worse. Well, what's happened, Coffee, is that in the intervening uh, 70 years, just about, we've done this experiment. And I shared with you a couple of review articles that list many hundreds of pathways that have been blocked in sepsis. There have been several hundred randomized controlled trials now. This is not just the adrenal trial. And I think it's super important for people to put this in this bigger perspective, that it's the, it's, it's the big picture that counts here. It's not just this one trial. Even this one trial is fantastic, and it's really great. But if you put it into the bigger picture of all of the other trials of immunomodulatory agents, many of them failed well before they got to human trials, or they failed in, in uh, pre-randomized controlled trials. But when they get to the randomized controlled trials, like this one, every single one of them ultimately has failed. Every time we've tried to find the so-called elusive magic bullet in sepsis to block that one pathway that's going to make everything better, or even a combination of pathways, it's been a losing strategy. Yeah, I'd say I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a magic bullet, but a magic recipe, a magic combination of bullets. Well, we've tried, but, it. We've tried those. Um, we've tried combination therapy. We've tried using single pathways, and both of them have been not helpful. Now, this is a funny pattern we sometimes see in medicine. When you look at each single thing, it doesn't really seem to be living up to its promise. And yet, when you look at sepsis survival, it's way better now than it was in 1900. So what if we that? Well, I think, um, you know, we've been... I can find articles from our local institution in which we introduced a committee to measure sepsis outcomes and to identify patients, and to intervene. And after this committee uh, formed and started measuring these sepsis outcomes, we'll say a decade or so ago, uh, it turned out that all of our metrics got better, and people patted ourselves on the back, and we thought, gosh, we're doing a much, much better job when it comes to sepsis here, here at our university. But really, <laughs> what's, what's changed there is, is that probably the mortality hasn't changed here, uh, but the, the, the denominator has changed. We just put we the, the basket of people that we tag with the with this identifier of sepsis by looking at uh, by measuring lactate. So by broadening our definitions, yeah. we got more survivors. So it's possible that the numerator has not changed and the denominator has changed, and that's led us to uh, falsely believe that we're doing things better. Now, well, there's antibiotics too. Oh, we did. We had antibiotics back in the day. Not in 1900, we didn't. Yeah, and that's one the one feature of sepsis treatment that has the most solid evidence, and even there it's not, not perfect, but the most solid evidence is giving people appropriate antibiotic therapy. So not one that's going to you know, miss a resistant organism or miss the boat entirely. So that's one thing that does seem to help. Having said that, I'm not convinced that the overall mortality of sepsis has changed. I'm also not convinced that our treatments have made people better. I don't think it's been proven. I still do it. I still send patients to the intensive care unit, and I still put people on pressors, and I still have art lines inserted and 
you know, patients get intubated, all the things that we do, I'm just not convinced that, that we're actually making uh, the difference that we think that we're making. Having said that, if I get sick tomorrow, um, go ahead and admit me to the ICU, do what you have to do, just don't give me steroids. All right, fair enough. So steroids are really our topic today, but it's interesting how similar this discussion would be if we were talking about most of the other interventions for sepsis. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to focus on this idea of immune modulating or immune targeted treatments. All right, let's go there for a second. I, to me, I've never seen this as an all or nothing, but the immune system is a cascade system. It's a system that once it gets going, whips itself into a frenzy, and it uses a very Byzantine system of uh, interregulators. I would compare it with the inflammatory system and the coagulation system. The coagulation system is the easiest comparison to make because we can so easily see how disordered it can get. We have hypercoagulability issues, we have hemophilias, we have DIC. It is definitely the case that that cascade system can get out of whack, out of control. In fact, you and I are probably making PEs as we speak and trying to clear them at the very same time. One of the interesting things about physiologic systems compared to ones we would design is that they drive with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas pedal. Right, a PE is a pulmonary embolus. Uh, Sorry about that. And so um, when we say that this thing is well-designed and well-modulated and so forth, that's actually not how I've ever seen the immune system. I see it as a very delicate, wobbly, wonky kind of Byzantine system that can easily err in one direction or the other. Well, you know, Coffee, I I agree with you. And in, in thinking that, there's no reason to think that, that everything that happens in sepsis is good for you, that natural is better. And I certainly thought that we can do better than nature in, ma- in many respects, and that we should be able to identify certain groups of people that would benefit by some sort of immunomodulation. But what we've tried to do is this kind of blanket treatment of either turning mm-hmm. down, blocking pathways, uh, adjusting things in, in a way that the track record for making things better just just hasn't turned out. And it's, it's kind of remarkable. It surprises me. I get The one reason I get so excited about this is that I'm as surprised by this as almost anybody. Yeah. I wouldn't have predicted this result in exactly the same way, that every single <laughs> treatment has, has failed uh, in, in, in pretty dramatic fashion. And I've shown you, we'll, we'll, for the benefit of our podcast listeners, I'll put up some... Uh, tables that just show the depth of these spectacular failures and the the huge number of trials that have failed in sepsis where people have tried to uh, block immune pathways. It really is just amazing. Well, it might be... One way we might talk about this is that we're looking at sepsis itself as the marker instead of looking for discrasias of the immune system before we fiddle with the immune system. Except that with regard to using hydrocortisone for sepsis, there have been a great number of people that have tried to measure whether there's something wrong with the immune system and done uh, looked for adrenal insufficiency uh, with the... Help me out here. Oh, that was the... The, the, the stim tests? Yes, yeah. and which have really fallen out of fashion partly mm-hmm. because those things change back and forth so quickly. Um, that's interesting because it bears on the uh, Anon study in 2002 yep. where they felt that it helped non-responders. Um, 
that study was one of the big ones that led people to think hydrocortisone was doing some good. But um, that was after correction. And the study design didn't really require correction. When that correction was removed and the raw data was looked at, it was more in line with the Corticase trial saying that, uh, sorry, the Corticus trial in 2008, saying it improved shock but not mortality. And well, let's, let's get back to that idea. Yeah. Um, so you're right. So this Anon trial is one of the reasons why this adrenal trial was performed. And there, it was thought that there was not sufficient evidence to make a firm conclusion about which are the subsets of patients that might respond and how should, you know, would patients give, if given hydrocortisone in a slightly different way than in some of the early trials, would they actually get better? <clears throat> but since, listen, since the Anon trial has been performed, there was another recent one that I had a podcast about recently, and that was the HIPRESS trial. And the HIPRESS trial looked at uh, low-dose hydrocortisone uh, in patients with septic shock, and that trial also showed no benefit. And in the last couple of days, I've been looking at the pediatric literature, and the pediatric literature looks very much like the adult literature in that when trials have been done, uh, giving steroids doesn't seem to improve outcomes. But let's, let's, let's get back to the second observation that you made, which is that you know, shock, shock really is defined by um, a physician measuring something in a patient. Um, and even, even the things, and we're not, we're not machines, sometimes it's just gestalt. So I mentioned that I worked a shift in the ER just a couple days ago. And we had a patient who came in uh, that was billed as being stable, uh, yet he you know, had a fever and clearly had an infection. And when I went in, he was drenched in sweat. He looked pale. He looked like crap. His heart rate was 140, and his blood pressure was 81 systolic. So I got excited, and we moved him to the recess area. And uh, in a very short amount of time, he was on pressors and then up in the intensive care unit. So, but what... But we have this emotional response to patients that we, that we see this way, and it's very hard not to want to normalize them. <laughs> and I did it myself in that in that instance. So I have this kind of cognitive dissonance even in my in my own self. It's very very hard to not try to make everything look as good as possible. We're trained to do that in our specialty. So this discussion came up in the Belfast video. So I want to see what you think about this um, right. perspective. Let us say that there is no difference. In mortality outcome, mm -hmm. but there is fewer days on the vent, um, less time spent in a shock state, and less blood transfusions. At the very minimum, that would mean that the 128 pounds, that's the only price I had for the glucocorticoid cost addition, mm -hmm. would be very cost effective. Just not transferring, transfusing one unit of blood would absolutely pay for your uh, all the glucocorticoids that you used. You're not killing more people. It's certainly, nobody's anywhere is saying it's doing more harm that I could find. They're just saying it's not helping. Well, if there's less time spent in shock, I would predict there would be less subsequent ARDS and there would be less subsequent brain damage and chronic lung injury as well. But I wasn't able to find that data. I don't know if we know that answer. Right. So, Coffee, what you just did there was you used, used the, these results to as a hypothesis-generating uh, you know, heuristic. Yeah, it's a question I'm asking. I'm not, yeah. like, making a defense. I'm, I'm asking a follow-up question. So, I really have thought about this. And I think, for me, I wouldn't want to be put on steroids. Okay. Why so, not? Well, for no one thing, might help. there's a... 
if we just look at the adrenal trial, and we don't put it into the bigger context that I just talked about, if we just look at the adrenal trial, then what they showed was they had, they had a, a primary outcome, and the study was powered to find a difference in the primary outcome, which is mm-hmm. mortality, mm-hmm. and it's mortality at 90 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they had a variety of secondary outcomes. Uh, like you mentioned, blood transfusions, uh, days uh, of ventilation with the with their initial episode initial, of yeah. ventilation, um, uh, duration of, of shock, uh, and days in the ICU, etc. And some of some of these secondary outcomes did rise to the threshold of statistical significance, mm-hmm. even, even when they corrected for multiple comparisons. And those are, as you mentioned, that in this study. They showed that the patients receiving hydrocortisone did get fewer blood transfusions. They were extubated earlier, taken off the ventilator, and their initial stay in the ICU was uh, reduced by two days, so from 14 days to 12 days. So, but these are secondary That's a outcomes. Lot, though. I so, mean, but there's there's two yeah. two extremely important things to make here. So, one is that this study really was designed to look at the primary outcome, mm-hmm. and the primary outcome is the one that we can hang our hat on, mm-hmm. especially when we when we do a meta analysis as the authors did and presented. Uh, and look at all of the data uh, that have been done on this question of hydrocortisone for sepsis. And that answer, we know. We know with a, a very high degree of certainty that if you give hydrocortisone to a patient with sepsis, you are not going to prolong their life, and you're not going to improve their survival. Um, and that goes flies in the face. You think, well, gosh, if they are better in terms of shock, or if they're better and to have less ARDS, then why wouldn't they have higher survival? But like I said... That primary outcome stands, and that is the one that we can say with oh, no, a great no, no. degree I'm not of challenging the survival, but, I'm but just saying the there's a quality of life subsequently. There's, and that's that's worth looking into. I agree, but a single study looking at a secondary outcome does not answer the question. Concur as well, and and the other other piece, and I'm not the only one to have mentioned this, is that some of the stuff is based on physician judgment, just as I just mentioned. A patient appears to be looking better, and so you take them off the ventilator, you send them to a non-intensive care unit floor, um, and you think that they're improved. That, that was, I'm sure if you were to, to ask the physicians looking after these patients, they probably thought the patients were getting better. They thought they were better enough to get them out of the ICU, but in fact, they weren't. And if you looked at the number of days off the ventilator, uh, it was unchanged in the hydrocortisone versus the uh, uh, placebo group. If you looked at 28-day mortality, that was unchanged. So something interesting is going on here. And I think that the lesson here is that, yeah, essentially, hydrocortisone, quote-unquote, <laughs> cured or ameliorated their shock and made their shock kind of go away. But it did nothing to help their mortality. This is, And this really is exactly what you'd predict. What about if, morbidity? If the, so listen, you can have that, that point of view. And others, I'm sure, do too. And people, I'm, I'm hugely afraid that the surviving sepsis campaign, when they get, these, get a hold of these data and they meet, they're going to argue that we should be giving hydrocortisone sepsis, which would be the first time that we have, uh, in a guideline fashion, advocated for using a useless therapy uh, in terms of, of sepsis survival. Well, see, that's the thing. And, and by the way, this was mentioned by the panel as well, so this is not just me talking. If you give less blood spend a little less time in the ICU and a little less time in shock and yet get no mortality benefit at all, still they have a gentler ride on their way out of the world and the cost is drastically reduced. So if it's not hurting the outcome and it's helping both the cost effectiveness and the patient's comfort, why not do it? 
And there are there are two reasons. So one is that, like I mentioned, just in terms of getting closer to scientific truth, these secondary outcomes don't necessarily do that. And to be clear, I completely agree with you on that. These and are hypothesis generating. This study wasn't designed to look at those secondary outcomes. And so we don't want to over generalize and say they, these would be the secondary outcomes in every other study that looked at this, so but if they are. Despite the fact that they did, they did reach statistical significance, and despite the fact that this was as good of a trial as one could imagine designing, it was multi-center, uh, multi-country, the, you know, the population of interest is similar to the ones that we treat here. It's as good as it gets, as far as I'm concerned. Having said that, that result isn't as good as, it, as the primary outcome. It's also not as good in part because it relies on physician judgment, which is a little bit of a squishy concept. Mm -hmm. Mortality is easy to measure. It's mm -hmm. binary for the most part. We know if someone's dead or alive. Uh, and it's a hard outcome. And that's why that result is, is such a good one to look at. Whether days on ventilator or blood transfusion is going to depend in large measure on physician judgment. And those judgments can be faulty. And because of, because of that, that squishiness, and I'm, I'm not convinced that indeed those patients were better or had a gentler time. By the way, just to be clear, I'm personally yeah. I'm not particularly an advocate for steroids and sepsis. Uh, rather, I'm trying to ask the questions that I think might be asked by people who are listening. The, on the panel themselves, both the panel and the audience, they took a survey mm -hmm. and they said, how many of you are using steroids right now, having reviewed this same literature? Right. And more than half of the room, on both the panel and the audience, raised their hands. Then they said, how many of you are going to stop using um, steroids based on this study? And um, I think two or three hands changed their status. So for the most part, the people on the panel generally do regard uh, glucocorticoids as a weak recommendation with uh, poor evidence but favorable to that degree. And uh, most of them... Now, that's interesting. While so I was speaking, I, Joe brought I up just, a nice I, little survey on this. I just brought up the, the Twitters. Yeah. So this, is, this is from uh, ANZIX CTG, Clinical no. Trials. Group. But this isn't measuring changes, though. And so, no, this, yeah. this says, do the adrenal results mean that steroids should now routinely be prescribed to patients with septic shock? And of the surveyed people, and I was one of the survey, so one of 511 mm -hmm. votes... 40% said yes, 60% said no. Others, including Paul Young, who's a member of this group, uh, I've, I've had a back and forth with him. He said that for pragmatic and economic reasons that we should uh, probably give uh, steroids for shock. So <laughs> I think we're in this really weird place. I'm not pitching that we should. I'm pitching that the <laughs> right. answer is not as cut and dried as we'd like it to be. And in fact, the, the, mo the, the top... Uh, tweet, if you look at, this is um, Lascaru wrote, I don't think it ends the debate about sepsis, uh, the adrenal trial. And maybe it doesn't. I argue in the blog, my blog post, Lessons from Adrenal, that I, I, I think that with, with regard to the primary outcome, that is survival, that today, right now, in 2018, there is no longer equipoise about whether uh, giving steroids improves survival. That question has been answered. Whether it makes people have an easier ride or changes resource utilization or results in fewer blood transfusions, those are questions that remain up in the air. I don't know if, those, if we're going to get an answer to those questions. I think that the, the adrenal trial, as good as it is, 
that you can you can nitpick some of those results and there is enough uncertainty again in this universe of scientific truth that we don't know for certain that it does those things particularly when you're dealing with an outcome that relies on physician judgment there's nothing you just said that I would disagree with um, you said something on your blog I wanted to go back to it's time we just don't know whether or in what direction to adjust the immune system in response to sepsis it it's time that we stopped acting as if we did and spent more time trying to uh, understand the adaptive trade-offs that have shaped our immune system. In other words, we need to go back down to the uh, uh, biochemical and uh, cellular immunology level and understand these processes better. But while we're doing that, now, today, as you and I speak, there's an ICU full of people with sepsis that we got to do something with before we have those answers. And one of the intensivists left a uh, detailed comment on my blog. To that effect. Uh, argu arguing that he's going uh, to continue using uh, steroids. And that's fine. I, you know, it From this one trial, it doesn't look like we're killing people by giving them steroids. So it's not malpractice. It's not no, malpractice. It's terribly expensive. <laughs> to, to do it. But it's also essentially like many other therapies that have been shown to be ineffective, it is something that we should, I think, from a purely evidence-based standpoint, and to do you using the highest level of scientific certitude, that we should abandon it. I, that's what I think. Um, but, but really, whether or not a patient in our intensive care unit gets steroids today is missing the boat a little bit. And the reason I wrote that blog post was, one, to be deliberately provocative, and I'm, and I'm being provocative here. But I really want to raise awareness of this misapprehension of sepsis that goes way back. And so in 1913, Osler was the first to suggest that in patients with overwhelming infection and sepsis, the death resulted from the host response rather than from the underlying pathogen. So this is an idea that has deep roots in the medical establishment. And even if you look at the most recent definition of sepsis, it's defined as this life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated, well, let's underscore that, dysregulated, dysregulated host response to infection. And this is uh, Mervyn Singer et al. in JAMA 2016. A shout-out for Mervyn Singer. I think he's fantastic. Um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, this consensus report definition, which reflects the ideas of many people, really reflects the, the conventional wisdom that sepsis is a dysregulated host response. And then John Alverdi has argued that this idea has led to a huge amount of grant funding looking for these single or combined immune pathways that if we just block them, that will make things better. And so really the, this is part of the idea with, with hydrocortisone, is that here we have this immune modulating treatment and are we going to make things better? And the remarkable thing that we started off this podcast with, and that I think is really, we have to underline it because it's so bloody amazing, is that whenever we have tested this idea, this immunocentric view of sepsis, the sepsis comes from the host, not the, not the pathogen. Every time we've tested that with an intervention, that hypothesis has failed. We, we should reject that hypothesis at this point. So the, <laughs> the broad, blunt instrument that is hydrocortisone um, but even very detailed and samples. Then, I was just going to say that. And then right before this conversation, Joe, you showed me a whole bunch of studies that looked at uh, subcomponents of the immune system one by one. Does tinkering with this one help? Does tinkering with that one help? Nope, no matter which one we tinker with, it doesn't seem to do any good. However, um, 
And let's it's just, not just quite for that our, there's our no audience, evidence. Go ahead. Let's let's just review a couple of highlights. Why don't you bring that up? That um, list that you showed me. Okay. <laughs> well, first I have to find it. All right. This is a list that I put together. Yeah, that's the. This is, I but think this is the one I was thinking. Well, there's there, there are several. Okay. I have so many. Well, here's one. These are immune modulating treatments in sepsis that looked at specific uh, mediators of inflammation. Mm -hmm. So, this is from ICACR 2002, um, looking at anti-tumor necrosis factor antibodies, TNF soluble receptors, anti-prostaglandin, anti-bradykinin, anti-IL1. Uh, inflammatory cytokine. In every case here, the confidence interval included one, and so it did not rise to statistical significance. Mm -hmm. And the mortality, um, there was no mortality benefit. So that's one. There's, here's another from Marshall in the journal Trends in Molecular Medicine, April 2014, looking at a variety of different targets, the first one being endotoxin, or LPS. Yeah, use, you would think something like endotoxin would yeah. be a good thing to oppose, right? Let's block it. Yeah, let's I mean, get in there. Toxin and block it. sounds bad to me. Yeah, no we, good, huh? We should have a. a I, I would like to have a conversation just about this one. <laughs> All right. I think that we've been in part fooled by this idea that we think of it as a toxin. So we just named it wrong in the first place, huh? Well, it looks like a toxin. If you inject it into your body, it can kill you. Well, I was just going to say, and how do we, so, so the argument against that hypothesis is that it doesn't matter what we tinker with among these immune modulators, it doesn't seem to do any good. Yet, we know that SIRS, in the absence of a microbe, can kill people. Is that not an argument for the idea of a dysregulated immune system being the enemy? There are two major observations that people have made that have reinforced this conventional way of thinking that dates back to uh, Osler. So one is exactly what you mentioned, which is that it is 100% true that if I give you enough endotoxin and just inject it into your system, that you're going to die. <laughs> and you're going to die not because there's an invading pathogen in your body. You're going to die because of the host response. And that observation, you know, accords very well with the reductionist approach that's taken in many biochemical, um, microbiological labs in, around the world right now, is that people sees on that, that clearly there's no pathogen circulating in your blood. You're dying because these immune and coagulation cascades have been activated in such that there's cardiorespiratory collapse and death. So, and in fact, if you use that model of injecting LPS, then you can give all kinds of blockers and you can make them better. So these have been, those have been the first steps that have led people down this path uh, that have led to these failed therapies. Because when you translate those, those to a real-life situation, in fact, you don't get results. So having said that, the reason why the host response can be deadly is that this is a high-stakes game. In other words, if you do nothing, you die. If you do something, you might die. But on balance, again, in, a, in, a, in the conditions in which, under which we evolved, the host response, on balance, led to a better outcome than doing nothing. What's remarkable to me is that even in an ICU, so far, on balance, the evidence suggests that if we try to interfere with these supposed excessive and dysregulated responses, we don't make things any better. So we've seen this pattern before that making people look better doesn't actually make them better. Whether it's the alcohol that was in snake oil in the Old West mm -hmm. or the guarana that's in most of the herbal remedies you can buy at a store today, in my youth, in my uh, indiscriminate youth, I once had a torrid love affair 
with high-dose epinephrine. Ooh, oh, boy. It was brief, but it was passionate. <laughs> yeah. Because for a while there, everybody got a pulse back. And it seemed compelling to me at that time to say, look, I have to have a better chance of having a pulse tomorrow if they have a pulse when I'm done with them today, right? That's a great example. If I pronounce them right now, they, they're dead. If they're not dead when I send them upstairs, that's got to have improved their chance by some margin. Nope. Right. When you look at the outcomes, it really does not. Although it did lead to more neurologic wrecks than if we didn't use high-dose epi. So this pattern that making people look better doesn't actually make them better is something I think we all need to be sensitized to. And I think that's a big part of what we're talking about with these studies. Well, yeah, I agree. So we, having brought that up, this really highlights the fact that so much of what we're taught and what, what we learn is really incorrect and off-target. Off Epinephrine is a great example of that. So high-dose epinephrine, yeah, you can get a pulse back. That's great if you're a medic bringing somebody in. You deliver a live patient as opposed to a dead one. It's great in the emergency room because we can deliver a living patient as opposed to a dead one up to the intensive care unit. But if all we're doing is leaving some people with a neurologic catastrophe and, in fact, doing nothing good in terms of the overall mortality, then that's a, that's a horrific thing to be doing to, 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 to She broke patients. my heart. She strung me along, but I won't lie. I still think about her. <laughs> but even regular dose epinephrine, we're learning in patients who... So we're out of the sepsis realm. And we're oh, talking yeah, about, epi <laughs> itself is coming under fire, but it's a whole other podcast. We're, we're talking about yeah. patients that are coding. <laughs> this, this, this takes up so much of our, you know, of our cognitive space in both pre-hospital and emergency medicine. We think about it so much, and we, we train our trainees uh, ad nauseum on these things and it turns out that much of what we've been training them with regard to using high dose and perhaps even ordinary dose epinephrine has been wrong which just highlights that making people look better by our interventions doesn't necessarily lead to a better outcome right and none of us should be surprised by that this does raise a question that uh the endocrinologist on the panel and by the way i apologize i don't have a list of everybody's names because they really deserve to be recognized it's a great panel but uh, she raised a really interesting point. She said, I think it might have been a good idea to throw out all the people who died early after getting the steroids because steroids take a while to work. She said, it may be that if you had gotten rid of the early deaths, you might have found a stronger effect. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's a classic example of a uh, you know, post hoc uh, analysis. Special uh, pleading. Special pleading. And it's not the way that we do science, and I think it's probably wrong. There's another interesting lesson to be learned from this adrenal trial, which is that had you looked in with just the, with just the first cohort of patients that were enrolled in the trial, it looked like there was a benefit of hydrocortisone favoring survival. And many of these big trials have uh, these committees that do interim analyses, and they decide whether it's worth continuing on with the trial. If, if the signal is so strong in one direction or another, if your treatment is killing people, they will oftentimes pull the plug on they that They almost trial. did that on this one. They yeah. discussed that, that they talked about stopping it early because of that exact thing. Thank God they didn't, because that would have been you know, a <clears throat> false, false positive. We would have been wrong about it. And thank God they went ahead and, and got you know, the entire sample. So that shows that in, in human medicine... In a modern context, we need to do big trials. We shouldn't be stopping trials early. And I've uh, made some points along these lines, um, both on Twitter and, and on my blog. Uh, we, we need to run these trials to completion. 
Otherwise, we'll be killing people by having, again, a misunderstanding about the nature of the treatments that we do. To be honest with you, I think the last 15 minutes of this video ought to be required for everybody entering science. How they got this done, how they made a lot of right decisions, how they dodged a lot of bullets, yep. uh, quite frankly, it's a pretty heroic story. My hat's off to the adrenal trial people. Mm -hmm. Me too. I, I, am, I am truly in awe of what they accomplished. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they circumvented those barriers, it's really inspiring and tells us really what we should be aiming for in, in medical science. But what? we still keep getting left with, I guess we shouldn't do anything with septic people. No, it's just that many of, many of the things that we do are incorrect. We need, listen, we need to stop looking at immune targets and sepsis in the way that we have. Or we need to be much, much smarter about it. Should we use it? Well, I, I, we'd open too many cans of worms. But, I, well, go ahead. You were about to open a, another topic. So, Well, I was just going to get back to this idea of um, making the numbers look better but not making our patients better. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the things that, that happened here. Mm -hmm. We know from this trial that patients who got hydrocortisone died at the same rate as patients who got placebo. And yet, there was a time, as I mentioned earlier, in which they started to look better. Mm -hmm. And the people that were looking after these patients took them off the ventilator <clears throat> and moved them to a regular floor. And yet, they, they still died. So, and one, the sec one secondary finding was that the me mechanically ventilated patients receiving hydrocortisone were taken off the ventilator faster. So that's one idea where you'd think, well, gosh, that's such a good thing. Being on the ventilator would be horrible. Who You wouldn't want to wish that on anybody. And so why not give hydrocortisone? But the authors wrote that taking into account episodes of recurrence of ventilation, there were no significant differences in the number of days alive and free from mechanical ventilation. Mm -hmm. So if that's the goal, being off the ventilator, alive and free from being on a ventilator, hydrocortisone had no difference. And you have to take that into account here. So I think one confounder here that makes this difficult for all of us, and I'll throw myself into this club. I'm neither pro nor anti-steroid myself, or at least I guess I'm evolving as we speak, but I didn't start that way. Let's put it that way. Um, but we all want to do something constructive. The idea of standing there with our hands in our pockets, which is sometimes the right answer, yeah. is just agony for physicians. So there is a, a bias towards action. Yep that has been well described in physicians. And so this has led to both an uh, epidemic of overtreatment and overdiagnosis in a bunch of realms of medicine. And in my residency, it was quite explicit. You always err on the side of aggressive action. In my, yeah, I, so I, I trained and got the same kind of training. I remember being told, if you think about intubating this patient, do it. Yep. If you think about doing a lumbar puncture, just do it. When you take your boards and you're thinking, you're considering two different courses of action, choose the aggressive one. So it's not a justification for anything, but I think part of the reason why people are reluctant to let go of one treatment after another after another is that we want to do something to help our patient. If I think steroids are helping, it scratches an itch for me. And if I learn that they're not <clears throat> helping, and now that's one less thing I can do while I watch this guy die, I mean, that is really, really painful. I'm sympathetic to that perspective. And that thinking has led to these hundreds of trials, all of which have failed. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I sympathize because I, I was just there confronted with a patient that we put on vasopressors. The blood pressure came up. We all patted ourselves on the back and we felt great that the patient was going up to the intensive care unit. We don't know if making that patient's blood pressure to, back to the normal range, which is what we did, actually makes things better. 
So we should, we'll have to bring, come back to the vasopressor question at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we should talk a little bit about the feast trial uh, in children. Okay, that, this, so this was the African fluids. one uh, but, on fluids. Yeah, but the last point I want to make here is that I also felt better when the patient looked better. I felt better. But this is an emotional response. Yes. We know it's a bias, and we know that we need to confront it. So let's suppose that the intensivist comes down, and some of my colleagues really are in this category, and says, I want to give steroids because that might free up an ICU bed and might make this patient spend less time on the ventilator. Well, if it accomplished mm -hmm. nothing else, that actually does seem worth going after to me. And my counter, if it didn't my, my counterpoint would be, you know, we, we, we really do confront this problem of doing too much in medicine, and that is true with immunomodulatory agents. We know this from this massive body of evidence that, in, if, that taken as a whole, when we target the immune system, we fail to improve outcomes. And that, by and large, we need to do a little bit less than we have been doing in the past. And there's, a, there's, a, there's good evidence for that. That's true when we look at transfusion targets for red cells, when we look at uh, how much we resolve hype, um, hypercapnia, so retaining carbon dioxide. When we normalize that, we make people better, worse. When we give high-target vasopressors, we make people try to make their blood pressures more normal. That makes them worse that we really do need to, to actually combat this urge to make people better. When someone stops breathing, we put them on the ventilator. The first thing we do is we overshoot, and we give people huge tidal volumes, and we breathe for them much too fast. And so in trying to restore function, we oftentimes go a little bit too far. We need to dial it back. We need to recognize this bias towards action. We need to actually combat it actively. So I would tell the intensivist, no, I'm not going to start the hydrocortisone. You can when the patient is your patient, and and he or she is up in the intensive care unit. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it because I know that by not giving the hydrocortisone, I am erring on the side, which has this robust body of evidence supporting it. And I know, based on the adrenal trial, that I'm not hurting the patient by not giving hydrocortisone. And multiple other trials, too, but the adrenal is probably the best designed, and it's huge. It's larger than the most uh, influential trials prior to that put together. So the, I, I brought up this FEAST trial, and, and we've, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, I, and I blogged about the author, Catherine Maitland, uh, who published this trial in June of 2011. Um, and the full title of the, of the article is Mortality in Fluid Bolus in African Children with Severe Infection. The absolutely remarkable thing about this trial is that, uh, again, it was multi-center. They did it in three different countries in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And they either gave patients standard care, which was no fluid boluses, or they gave them uh, 20 ml per kilogram um, fluid challenge of either uh, a crystalloid, like normal saline. So the remarkable thing about this coffee is that this is exactly what we do in our hospital. If a kid from Uganda arrives in our hospital today, they're going to be given a 20 cc per kilogram fluid bolus. In this study in which they, they managed to um, you know, randomize the treatment, and they, they even uh, asked the nurses and physicians which, to predict which of the two options was going to do better, and they said that following our standard of care in North America and giving the fluid challenge was going to make the kids better. 
And in fact, the kids did look better. They, uh, their blood pressure got better. They were more active. Their eyes weren't sunken. Um, and yet, in the FEAST trial, unlike the adrenal trial, the treatment of normalizing blood pressure and giving a fluid bolus killed the kids. The mortality was higher in the treatment group. So that just shows you that making, making our sickest patients look better sometimes can be the exact wrong thing to do. And we don't know. There's not been a FEAST trial in North America. We don't know if we're killing kids in the United States by doing this. Now, when I looked at this, and I will uh, acknowledge, apologies, uh, Dr. Maitland, if I, if I missed this discussion, but when I looked at the study and the amount of time that I had, what I saw was that uh, the kids who were the very sickest were randomized between saline and albumin, and with withholding fluids was not an option for the sickest kids. Given that, of course, the ones who got fluids, either crystalline or, or uh, albumin, would have a higher mortality rate. No, there was a, there was an arm in the trial in which uh, the kids got nothing. Right, but those kids were not the sickest kids. So all the sick. Well, at any rate, it was the they they really wanted to know. Uh, they wanted I... to compare giving a fluid challenge, which is not their standard okay, of care, the whole study down. to their standard of care. <clears throat> um. So I just want to read a little bit about what uh, Catherine Maitland, the lead investigator, says about children with severe hypertension, uh, severe hypotension, were randomly assigned to one of the <clears throat> boldest groups only, stratum B. So the kids who were severely hypotensive, there was no no fluid arm. Okay. To me, that's pretty significant. Now, it is possible to tease that data out separately, and as I say, I didn't give this as much time as I would like to have. I just ran out of time. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, thanks, thanks for bringing that up. If you look at the overall effective treatment in these kids with evidence of impaired perfusion and uh, febrile illness, which is what we would describe as you know, serious bacterial illness um, and or shock, <clears throat> the reason why the Maitland and the other investigators performed this trial was to find out whether doing what we do under normal, normal uh, circumstances is better. So the fact that there was that stratum does suggest that this test should be followed up with some additional work. And I, I would absolutely be in favor of that. Uh, but the signal in this study really was in favor of not giving fluids. Uh, and in that stratum in which, which no bolus was tested, those kids did better. And that was surprising to the people that, that, that undertook the study. It was surprising to the nurses and doctors that were there. But what was interesting to me is that recently in Lancet, uh, Dr. Maitland was quoted as saying, quote, our theory is that the shock response in severe febrile illness is a defense mechanism, and bringing children out of this too soon with a fluid bolus can be counterproductive, resulting in later cardiovascular collapse. And what is the putative mechanism for that? Well, I don't know if she says so in this uh, I didn't article. See it. But having said that, I, I, I think it's kind of remarkable that such a prominent, uh, well-published, and excellent researcher has even said this in, oh, in the literature too. because it, it's unpopular to, to argue in favor of some of these things that we're seeing as being adaptations. Just in, in our previous podcast, we talked about how 
evolutionary medicine doesn't get much love in medical school, and in some ways people would poo-poo the notion that much of what we're talking about represents an adaptation. So we, you know, it's one thing to propose that there is some adaptive value to these things. It's another to actually find, well, what is the way in which the adaptation works? And that's the mechanism. It's very credible to me that some things like fever are adaptive mechanisms, and that other things like shock are not adaptive mechanisms. Um, the case for saying that shock is really bad for cells and tissues and for long-term well-being mm-hmm. is very clear to me. The even theoretical but the, but there's case a ca- there's a that shock is worse for the bug than it is for me, I haven't seen that case made. I don't know what it consists of. So I'll give you just a few examples. Um, so one is that uh, the glycocalyx that uh, is on endothelial cells um, in your blood vessels that when we give tremendous amounts of normal saline and crystalloid, that layer of these complex carbohydrates and proteins that, that so layer the inside cell, off. they get washed off. So that's one mechanism whereby giving fluids can be bad. That's been, that's been so in at. shock, that layer would thicken for the exact opposite reason? No, no. During, uh, the, the, during shock, that layer may be doing something useful, and we wash it away with our fluids, causing problems. So no, that, no, 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 but we're talking about the case that shock is somehow beneficial. So protecting that layer is the case you're making? Well, I was, I was making the case, one, one reason that people have argued that giving fluids might be bad. But as for, okay. I wasn't totally prepared to uh, give my case for the adaptive value of shock here. Okay. Um, I can do it. No, no, I think it'd be a great discussion for another podcast. It's a really interesting topic. Well, let's, let's, let's uh, I'll just, off the top of my head, um, give some reasons for why it might be good to have a low blood pressure. So number one is that, um, and, and also not having, not being diluted with with normal with fluids. One is that we know that gene expression changes in just about every tissue that you look at when we're in shock. So this is that host response that we're talking about. This supposedly dysregulated host response, and you look you can look at gene expression changes in endothelial cells, at, at the tissue level, and in blood, uh, and certainly in white blood cells, uh, kind of across the board. And the result of that gene expression is that cells start producing proteins. And the protein um, production and manufacture changes. And some of those proteins are doing some things that are good. So one problem with, with giving people fluid boluses is that we're diluting uh, the concentration of those useful proteins that are busy fighting infection and combating invasive pathogens. And so we don't think about that and that all these changes in gene expression are good for us. Uh, that when we give huge amounts of fluids. So that's one, one problem. The second issue that I think is probably the reason why being having low blood pressure um, is, is looking actually at trauma as an example. Do you remember the Bickel trial? Uh, this is from 1994. This is the blood the off trial? Yeah. They looked at uh, patients that had suffered penetrating trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this study showed that when... Uh, paramedic picks up someone who's been shot in the chest or shot, shot in the belly and is bleeding, that if, if, fl- if fluids are given uh, in transport, as opposed to giving no fluids, that the fluid, fluid recipients that looked better temporarily, just like what we've, we've been talking about, they actually died at a faster rate. And so the reason for that is that, like you mentioned, that the fluids might pop the clot. <clears throat> and prior to that, within my working lifetime, by the way, we just had a more fluid is better kind of approach for a while. Yeah. Well, just think for a moment about an invasive uh, pathogen um, that 
if if something has access to the bloodstream, and I, the reason why I bring up the trauma example is that clearly having a low blood pressure there is almost certainly a adaptive response, and we can get into that maybe in a later podcast. But the low blood pressure in sepsis where an invasive organism basically has access to the bloodstream and is spilling in unimpeded. So the argument would be that by lowering the blood pressure, by lowering the uh, by lowering flow, by slowing flow in the microcirculation in particular, that that might be a way that uh, the body prevents um, this unimpeded flow of microbes into the bloodstream, gaining access to the sy- systemic circulation, and that may actually aid trapping of those pathogens. So if slow, this has been shown quite quite convincingly, is that when flow is slow in the microcirculation, fibrin, white blood cells, even red cells participate in pathogen trapping. So I think that low blood pressure may be an adaptation that reflects a ramped up uh, um, example of um, pathogen trapping. But the other piece that happens during sepsis, which Mervyn Singer has, has looked at, is that you know, your mitochondria function differently in sepsis. They actually produce less energy. And the pathway of glucose utilization changes in cells uh, when you're when you're septic. And he's argued that this is an estivation or a hibernation response. That the stunned myocardium, that you know the, the heart doesn't pump as effectively, the brain doesn't consume as much glucose as happens during a normal state. This, these are actually adaptive or beneficial responses. So it's possible that basically you don't need as much blood pressure if your organs are consuming less less. Uh, you know, less energy in that in the traditional way. So I don't think there's as much evidence for that viewpoint, for the you know, the hypotension as being beneficial in that res- regard. I think it has to do with pathogen trapping. So, Joe, based on what you understand now, what are your treatment goals when you're managing a septic patient? So one, and the thing that I'm going to, we're going to be discussing this with our residents at the Journal Club, and I'm sure there's going to be a vigorous debate along the lines that we just had. Yeah, one is that I think we need to pay attention to the most recent evidence, and we need to pay attention to the totality of the evidence. So our charge as physicians who are entrusted with life and death in our patients, we need to be as up-to-date as possible, and we need to take, take all of these viewpoints into considerations. Otherwise, we're going to kill our patients. So that, that's, a, that's a tough thing to do, <clears throat> and that, that's true for anything. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting here and in the blog and in my career, is that inserting a little evolution into your thinking is a good thing. It introduces skepticism. It allows you to put a few observations that otherwise would make no sense into perspective. And it's going to, in this case, I think it's going to tend to push us in the less is more direction, that doing a little bit less might actually benefit our patients. And as, as we discussed earlier, that seems to be true in a variety of different domains. Vasopressors, uh, tidal volumes, correction of uh, hypercarbia, um, even giving, um, well, replacing things like calcium. There's, there's, there's so little benefit for so many of the things that we do. <clears throat> and there's a profound signal that at least for certain things that we're harming folks. And we've got to stop doing that. Well, we seem to go through the less is more loop every once in a while. So yeah. that doesn't actually astonish me. It seems to be like a stock market correction. It's a kind of thing that we have to do from time to time. Right now. But like I said, I think this is profoundly challenging when you are confronted with a sick patient talking to their family. And <laughs> we're going to talk about doing less and doing fewer things. It just, it, it, gosh, it, it, it tears at you. And I, I just know that 
the, the lessons from the adrenal trial that I'm taking are not going to be the ones that most people are going to take as take-home points. Most people, I think, are going to err on the side of not changing their practice. Or... Well, both I and the Belfast panel read it as saying, if you want to use steroids, you're probably not doing any harm. And I would just... Look, maybe we should finish up here quick. And I want to leave with, with one, one point, which I think is, uh, is, is really telling here. And that is my, my favorite example of a sepsis drug, which is... <laughs> Um, that we've talked about is this medicine, Zygris, which is activated for GC. <laughs> I keep coming back to this. I just I love this example. It's my absolute fave. Brace um, yourself for poor, pure for, evil. No, for, for people that... Uh, <laughs> next time... Gosh, there's so much to talk about. I, what I want to say is that the initial trial that purportedly showed, this is the prowess trial, that, that Zygris was beneficial in sepsis. And this is an apropos example because in addition to being a... Uh, slightly anticoagulant effect of Zygris. It's also anti-inflammatory, so it's another immune modulator. The first trial suggested that it worked. The subsequent trials did not. Uh, it took 10 years for, for them to pull it from the market. And the final trial that showed that it was an ineffective therapy didn't show evidence of harm. It was just like this adrenal trial. And it showed basically an evidence of inefficacy, that it didn't improve survival. But just like the adrenal trial, there was evidence that the patients who had received Zygris had an increase in adverse effects. And those were things like bleeding. In the adrenal trial, in this trial, there's evidence that the patients receiving the hydrocortisone had an increased number of untoward and adverse effects. Things like, um, you know, uh, metabolic disturbance. Um, I think bleeding is another one that happened more in the, in the uh, adrenal group, adrenal uh, hydrocortisone-treated uh, group. So if you had the, only the one patient, only the one paper to go by, you'd say, "Well, gosh, Zygris isn't hurting people. You know, the the mortality is the same, and the outcomes were the same. Maybe we should continue to give it." Uh, but then su- subsequent meta-analysis showed that indeed that that signal of increased harm really was there, and the patients did bleed more, and that actually was hurting the patients in the Zygris example. So I think that here there's a hint that indeed using hydrocortisone might actually be hurting our patients. So for people that want to give uh, hydrocortisone because one, it doesn't hurt mortality, and two, it might get them off the vent faster. They're missing the boat here. They're basically arguing for what I consider to be an ineffective treatment that increases the number of adverse events. And that's a scary place to go. So I think in terms of judgment calls, two of the most common in medicine that relate here, one is if my treatment isn't benefiting my patient, should I double down? Am I not doing it hard enough? Or should I change course? Yeah. And there's not a generic answer. It's a really tough question. In terms of new medical research, should I adopt this new thing? Or should I wait and see how it pans out over time? And that also, I would argue, is not a very simple one. I remember an article seven, several years ago that looked at exciting new findings in medical journals and said that 80% of them were not reproducible. Right. And we know that in science in general, mostly in psychology and social sciences, we're suffering a reproducibility crisis right now. So I have a, this a is, bias. This, this and is the paper. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Most published, why most published research findings are false. Because of you know, positive publishing bias and things like that. What I was going to say is that I tend to have a, a default setting that... I'm very reluctant to change my 
established understanding of things based on any single paper. I mean, things like Cochrane reviews have a pretty strong effect on me, but I'm 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 always wanting to guard myself against getting excited by even a really good study. That said, there are some that are really that good, and adrenal is adrenal pretty darn good. Is as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm not going to say. I'm I'm absolutely not casting shade on the adrenal study. I think it's an absolutely paradigmatic study, and I hope we see more like it all throughout medicine. Um, But there is a reason why it takes time for new innovations to percolate through medicine, and the majority of them will not survive that vetting process. It's worth understanding, remembering that. And by the way, thank you for pulling that up. Can you send me that link? Sure. So the paper by John Ioannidis... uh, a, a Greek researcher uh, wrote this paper, Why, why Most public, Published Research pa- Findings Are False. <clears throat> it was also written up in The Atlantic. It's a great article that uh, is mm-hmm. worth reading. We'll link to this in the show notes. Great, great. <clears throat> well, as always, you've made my head get all spinny and dizzy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mine too. Yeah. There's, this is such... It's such uh, this is why I love the adrenal trial. and I, I, Because it's such a good, a good study. And because the the results really are compelling, and it, it's going to generate all kinds of conversation, it probably should be the topic of multiple journal clubs. And I think that people are going to have a variety of different takeaway points. What I hope doesn't get lost in this is the is the implications and the evolutionary implications uh, of this of this research. And that's that's what I feel is my role, my my one voice, which is a little bit different from some of the others, uh, to to really. <laughs> kind of hold firm on the idea that we shouldn't be doing valueless treatments. And I think that it's a, uh, with regard to these secondary outcomes, um, that might be counterbalanced by the increased adverse uh, events that we need to be very careful in looking at immune modulating treatments and sepsis. All right. There is more to say, but we're not going to say it now. (laughs) We will uh, join uh, you, our our audience, uh, hopefully next week for some more discussion um, on a topic that we hope will be as interesting as this one. So thank you so much, Coffee, for joining me. My guess is we could do a whole podcast on the comments we're likely to get from this one. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thank you.